all your attention to. First beginning in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 26, and I'll read beginning at verse number 14. Several passages that are necessary for us to get the gist and the heart of this particular truth tonight. In Matthew 26 and verse 14, the Bible reveals these words and says, Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priest and said unto them, What will you give me, and I will deliver him unto you? And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Look, if you will, to verse 47 of the same chapter, and the story continues, saying, And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And then turning to chapter 27 at verse number 3, the history of the life of Judas continues and says that verse 3, Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself, and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priest and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore, that field was called the field of blood unto this day. And then there are two other verses that I wish to read found in the book of Acts chapter 1. And I read verse 8, 18 and verse 25. Here the Bible concludes as far as earth is concerned the life of Judas and the very tragic end of his life on this earth. And at verse 18 the Bible says of Acts 1, Now this man, Judas, purchased a field with the reward of iniquity. And falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. Verse 25 concludes saying that he may take part of this ministry, a reference to Matthias and apostleship, from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. To me, there is no sadder story in all of the Bible 
of personal loss and tragedy than the life and the death and the eternal destiny of this man who is called Judas Iscariot. It is certainly one of the greatest tragedies that is recorded in the entire Word of God. And indeed it is a tragedy when you begin to look at his life and observe that this man, Judas, one of the disciples of our Lord, was so very near eternal life and yet was so very far away. A tragedy to think that this man, as one of the inner circle of the of that for those followers of Christ, had the high privilege and the noble privilege that only eleven other men ever had of such intimate and personal relationship. And yet having that intimate relationship and knowledge of the person of Christ, yet hearing the majestic voice of Christ, seeing the glorious miracles that he performed by the laying of his hands upon those who were diseased and by the words spoken from his mouth, and yet hearing and seeing and feeling all that he felt in the company of Jesus Christ. Yet the tragedy is that he died a condemned, benighted, and darkened soul that rides this very hour in the flames of a terrible and an awful hell. Many years ago in the city of Anderson, South Carolina, I sat in the living room of a very fine couple, a man and his wife who had been very dear to me, and as we talked of the things of Christ, our subject came around to this strange and mysterious man by the name of Judas. And Mrs. Brown turned to me and said, You know, Brother Walter, I heard somebody say the other day in describing Judas that he was the man who kissed the door of a heaven but went to hell. I can think of no greater and sadder description of any man or woman than to think that a fellow could come as near as to the door of heaven itself and implant a kiss on that door and then turn and forever be abandoned from God in the fire of the eternal hell. Jesus our Lord said, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. The Bible does not say that if a man knows about the door, if he can describe the door in ever so eloquent a language, or if he can even point others to the door, but rather only that one who enters in the door will be saved according to the word of God. The life of Judas indeed is a tragedy. But in the second place, it is a great lesson. A lesson that every man and woman who faces eternity ought to consider and ought to teach himself and ought to seriously approach. The great lesson, my friend, is this. If it were possible for such a man as Judas to walk in the company of Jesus Christ, to hear his voice, 
to feel the power of his presence and to see the marvel of his miracle. If it is possible for a man like that to live in such divine company and die and go to hell, I want to tell you, dear man and woman, it is possible in our day of religion for men and women to hear and to see and to feel and yet die without Christ and spend a terrible eternity in hell. It behooves us in the same vein that Paul wrote to the Corinthians when he said, Examine yourselves. See whether ye be in the faith. Oh, what the need there is in our modern hour when religion so abounds and when men talk so shallowly of being born again. How needful it is that we examine ourselves and see whether we be in the faith. And he said, Brother Burl, I don't think you ought to disturb people like that. I've never seen one fella who had ever who was ever disturbed who really trusted in Jesus Christ that he got disturbed when you said to an audience to go to heaven you've got to trust Jesus Christ. I've never seen anybody get upset like that. You teach the gospel, preach the gospel of the grace of God, and men have experienced that, brother, they rejoice in it. But to some man who knows nothing of that grace of God, it is a disturbing, unsettling, uneasy factor that comes into his own heart and into his own soul. So tonight I'm going to ask you to do something to soberly and as seriously as you ever have in your life because of the destiny of soul, of heaven or hell, I, I, I challenge you tonight to examine your soul in the light of the Word of God and see whether or not you be in the faith. Now, if your religious experience will not stand up to the scrutiny and the fire of the Word of God, my dear friend, you've got something to worry about. The whole story is I want us to see something about this man that I believe certainly hundreds in this country and thousands need to consider carefully. I want us to look at this man, Judas. What a mysterious, what an unusual character he is. I say three things about him first. As the man who kissed the door and went to hell, the door of heaven and went to hell, let me first of all point out to you something about Judas as a man. First of all, I believe that you would discover Judas to have been a, a very pious man. I mean by that he was outwardly very religious. Can you conceive of Jesus selecting as one of his 12 disciples an atheist? A man who blatantly denied the very existence of God? Can you imagine that? It is hardly conceivable to our mind that Jesus would choose as one of his disciples one who flatly and outwardly denied the very father from whence Jesus came. He was a very pious, a very religious man, but that's nothing to be shocked about. For every man in this world, according to the philosopher, is incurably religious. 
I don't care where you find man, he is religious. The Hottentot of Africa, the Aborigine of the backcountry, look wherever you are in pagan society, behind the Iron Curtain, the Bamboo Curtain, the Western world, I'll tell you one thing about man, he is incurably religious. Wherever you find him, but religion is not the answer according to the Bible. Well, this man was a very outwardly religious man. But yet, this man, by reason of his piety, was uh, so as a result of his direction in religion and his dedication in religion on the part of his parents. Judas had a background of religion. He was dedicated to the religion of the Jews at a very early age, even as was our Lord Jesus. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, and verse number 27, the Bible relates that Mary and Joseph took Jesus up to the temple to do with him after the custom of the Jews. They went through a religious ceremony. It was an act of dedicating their child to the very God whom Israel vowed that they followed and worshipped. But Judas was religious, not by reason of his dedication, but by reason of his direction. His mother and father were indeed devout. His father, as was the Jewish custom, acted as a priest to his family. He was not only concerned about the material welfare of his family, but he was greatly concerned about the spiritual well-being of his family. Would to God that men in our Western world would somehow feel the same kind of burden in this modern day. For a father is not given to his children all that they need when he merely brings home the bacon. But ah, listen, it's not only bacon that we need, but it's the Bible that our children need. And yet this young man was dedicated in religion. He was directed in religion. He knew the Torah. He knew the writings of Moses. He heard the words of the prophets. He was very well versed in the things of the religion of the Jews. He was thus then a very pious man, a very religious man. I could say more about that aspect of his life, but I want you to look at something else. He was a man not only of piety, but he was a man of praise. His name itself betray, reveals that. The name Judas actually is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Judah, which means praise or praiseworthy. Can you imagine that kind of name being given to such a character as Judas who later would bring the very shame down upon the Savior and down upon the very God whom he is born to praise and to honor and adore? And yet Judas, that name for praise, though certainly a misnomer for him as we look from this side of his life, but those in his day did not see him as we do. I think he was praised for his apparent acts of honesty and benevolence. He was a very kindly man. He apparently was a very honest man. Outwardly, that is, for you remember in the Bible that this man was selected as the treasure of the group of 12 disciples. Who could imagine wise and intelligent men selecting a common thief to be their treasure? Ah, he was praised for his honesty and for his benevolent deeds as well as for his works. In the 10th chapter of the book of Matthew, you'll read an astounding thing. 
that our Lord granted unto those twelve, and I challenge you to find it. The name of Judas is not left out. It is there that they did marvelous works. They healed the sick. They performed miracles. And people looked at them. I want to tell you something. I believe Judas was in that crowd as they went out as those, uh, the disciples of our blessed Lord. Perhaps he was such a man of praise that there were some who said, I want to pattern my life after this fellow. I imagine there's some little boys in the community who said, hey, you know who I want to be like when I grow up? I want to be like Judas. Why, such a kind, personable fellow. He's such a gentle man. He has such a winsome personality. I want to be just like Judas when I grow up. He was a man of great praise. But I want to say this in the third place. He was a man of pretense. He wore a mask that few ever saw through while he lived. But he was a world's greatest pretender. He was a pretentious man, and the Bible reveals it. Now, somebody said to me, oh, preacher, listen, you misunderstood it. Why, this fellow's all right to start with, and he is good, and he is a child of God. But you see, later on, he became corrupt, and he got lost after he was saved because of his sin and his corruption. No such thing. The Word of God doesn't teach that. Fellow gets saved, but I mean, he's saved forever. Lord gives him eternal life. No, this fellow didn't become corrupt, my friend. He was corrupt from the beginning. Listen to Jesus' words in John chapter 6, verse 70. And Jesus said upon the selecting of 12 disciples, this is a mystery. He said, I've not I chosen you 12, notice, not 11, but I've not I chosen you 12, and one of you is a devil. He didn't say, the fu- use the future tense, but he used the present tense. One of you right now is a, a, a devil. Oh, my friend, listen. He was that very unbelieving, pretentious man from the beginning, though he walked in the company of Christ. Invariably, somebody asked when that truth is presented, does Jesus not know and did he not know this man? If so... Why did he choose him? If he knew him to be a devil from the beginning, if he knew what he was going to do, if he knew that he'd hear the gospel and hear the message of salvation and see the Messiah himself and yet reject him and sell him for 30 pieces of silver, why did he choose him? I want to submit to you that I believe in that act of our Lord is one of the greatest portrayals of the love the mercy and the grace of God anywhere to be found in the record of the Scripture. He knew him. And yet, knowing what he would do, he gave him every opportunity to hear him and to learn of his own sin and to learn of his need of repentance, to learn of his need of a Savior, to be warned of hell. He, in love, mercy, and grace, gave him every opportunity any man could ever hope to have. And yet by the same token, I wonder sometimes, why were you born in this country? Why are you here tonight having heard the gospel preached by this faithful pastor? Heard the witness of your precious mother and father? 
your husband, your wife, your children, your friends, your neighbor. Why is it that God, knowing that you would reject him as you have, why did he ever let you hear the gospel to start with? It's because he loves you. It is because he has mercy. And it's because in his grace he offers you redemption and forgiveness of sin at a home in heaven. And to men today in that same love, mercy, and grace, he offers the glorious person of Christ and the glorious gift of eternal life. Judas was such a successful pretender that not even the disciples suspected him to be a betrayer. Think of that. You remember at the Last Supper? And Jesus announced solemnly to those men, one of you will betray me. And listen to the record of the Scripture. Did Simon Peter say, Lord, I know who it is. It's old Judas. I've been watching him, and I'll guarantee he's the bird. John did not say, Lord, I tell you, I know who it is. I've been checking up on him. We've been missing some funds out of the treasure. I'll guarantee it's old Judas. Hey, wait a minute. You know what they said? Those devoted followers of our Lord said one after the other, Oh, Lord, is it I? Am I the one? Listen, they had rather suspect themselves to be the betrayer than they would to suspect Judas. What a pretender. Oh, Shakespeare said in one of his renowned plays, Oh, what a goodly outside falsehood to have. What a beautiful outward appearance. What a nice show. They sing all the hymns. They can quote some of the verses. They carry a Bible. They talk the language. But down deep inside in the heart, the Savior has never in faith been received into that precious, precious heart. Judas pretended to be a follower of Jesus, a devoted follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. He pretended that, he's, that, that, uh, he really, that he really cared, that he even cared for the poor. The Bible said that in John chapter 12, verse 1 through 8, remember when that precious woman brought a pound of spikenard very costly, and she broke it open and anointed the Lord Jesus in holy and beautiful worship of him began to wipe his feet even with her, with her hair, the tears that had fallen from her eyes and his feet, she wiped them. And you remember what was said at that place? Judas said, I tell you what, why didn't you take that and sell that spikenard, very costly stuff, and bring the money and give it to me so we give to the poor? Don't you imagine somebody said, God bless his heart. Oh, he really cares, doesn't he? It's a show. I'm going to tell you what it is. You know what I think else it else, uh, what else it is? I think it's an attempt to cover up what he really knew was inside and what he feared somebody would find out was on the inside. I fear men who constantly are telling you how righteous and good they are. I constantly, I fear those who constantly are parading all of their goodness before men. Listen, if you've got any goodness about you, you don't have to tell anybody. They'll pick it up. Man's not that stupid, boy, I'll tell you that. 
And yet again, Judas had a thing seemingly. He didn't want somebody to see through that facade, that face, that mask. Oh, how religious, how benevolent he seemed. But down in his heart, he cared not for the poor, John said. But he was a thief. And he carried the bag. Some selfish interest involved. A pretender of the highest sort. He pretended to care. He was constantly on guard. Can you imagine the misery of this kind of fellow? Knowing that down inside he was not real. There was a rejection of Christ. Can you imagine how he must have felt uncomfortable and tense and miserable in the company of those who spoke the truth? Can you imagine how he felt in the presence of those disciples when one after one as they sat around the fireside maybe on the sea of si- shores of the sea. Now I hear one of them say, hey, let me tell you fellas, I want to tell you about the time I met Jesus. I'd like to share with you my personal testimony when he came by. Imagine old Matthew said, listen, I was sitting in the office over there taking up taxes. He came by and just pointed his finger at me and said, follow me. He said, you know what I did? I resigned, I folded my book up and followed him. Hey, listen, they shared that testimony. But you know what I think? When it came Judas' time, I think he was conspicuously absent. He may have got a stomachache, felt bad, just didn't want to hang around that crowd. Now, I will tell you, a lot of folks can talk religion, but listen, I'm talking about a personal experience with Jesus Christ. The devil, listen, the devil can talk religion. He can have a conference on religion of the church. I'm going to that a fellow who's been saved by the grace of God and he knows it in his heart. Before I save, listen, I could argue with anybody about the Bible. I could discuss religions as good as the next fellow. But when folks start talking about getting saved, man, that made me uneasy. My back got to hurting. My stomach got to aching. I wanted to get out of there. I didn't, I didn't care about that. So what I'm saying is Judas was a man filled with pretense, constantly on guard, afraid of what would be revealed. I can see this in my mind. When Jesus preached that great Sermon on the Mount that the liberal so often takes only a small part of and just waxes eloquent. And much of the Sermon on the Mount is eloquence. But I want to tell you something. It's heart-searching too. You, some of you have forgotten this is a part of the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to these words. And Jesus said, And not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. For many will come to me in that day and shall say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we not cast out devils? Have we not done many wonderful works? And then Jesus said, I will profess unto them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Can you imagine how Judas felt when he heard that? Here he sits. He's all nods as Jesus is speaking about the blessed or the poor. He nods in fine and gentle agreement. And even when he comes to the first part of this section, I see Judas standing kind of at the back of the crowd. And Jesus said in that day, he said, Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of God. Jews must say that's right. And Jesus said, But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, his nod wasn't too strong. But then Jesus said, Then many will come to me in that day and shall say, Lord, Lord, 
You just said, that's what I call it. Have we not prophesied in thy name? And Judas must have thought, man alive, have I ever. I've gone with all the other disciples, preached around, told them about Jesus, told them what we've heard, told them what he taught us. Hey, he told them what he had heard. A poly parrot could do that. But Judas, hey, wait a minute. He said, well, yes, I prophesied. I've been a preacher. That's what it means. I've been a missionary. I've been an evangelist. I've been a pastor. But wait, he said, not everyone that saith that we, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. And even we'll come and say, Lord, have we not prophesied in the name? But watch, have we not cast out devils? Hey, that's miracle working, isn't it? I want to tell you something. Don't be sucked in by every old Tom, Dick, and Harry in the country comes along and said, hey, I'm God's man. You watch me cast this devil out. You better watch that kind of stuff. Just because a fellow performs an outward miracle and removes a gorder or cures an ingrown toenail is no sign that he's God's man. Don't you forget that. And you remember that when the Antichrist comes and the false prophet comes, he'll perform marvelous, unbelievable miracles. He'll call fire down out of heaven. Man, this gullible, religious, unconverted crowd will swallow it, hook, line, and sink. Judas Iscariot performed miracles. Watch this. He said, have we not done many wonderful works? And Judas thought, boy, have I ever. Oh, I've cared for the poor. But now, like a bolt of lightning out of the sky... Jesus said, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Man, how that must have crushed. Now imagine he could slink back in the crowd a little farther, not wishing to be seen. From that moment he felt that Jesus had seen him. He felt that now that he did, that that was hidden all these years was all of a sudden manifest. And he sought opportunity to betray our Lord. He was a pretender. But I said in the beginning, it was the man who kissed the door of heaven and went to hell. He bargained with sin. He said to the chief priest, I'll take 30 pieces of silver and I'll deliver him into your hands. And so the bargain was struck. And Judas thinks now, boy, I've come out the winner on this one. I'll go over there and I'll just simply point him out and he'll do the rest. 30 pieces of silver. Hey, that 30 pieces of silver pleasure didn't last long, did it? And I'm going to tell you, sin's pleasure is short-lived. But I want to tell you something else. Its payment is sure. It's, there's coming a payday for the sin of the rejection of Jesus Christ. And yet when Judah struck the bargain, he like Esau thought, boy, I have gotten now exactly what I want. But sin never tells its after effects. Judas didn't see himself hanging, dangling from a rope with his bowels now gushing out as he falls from that rope on some precipice below. He doesn't see that. And men blinded by their sin and pride do not see the end result. Judas bargained with sin. He betrayed the Savior. He's now a sign of betrayal was that of a kiss. I see him now with his silver pieces jangling in his little tight leathern, leathern purse. He leads the soldiers out from the high priest dwelling the temple 
He comes down through the backside and the narrow streets. Dogs bark in the distance at the sound of soldiers this hour of the night. A woman turns restlessly in her bed and says to her husband, whispering, What is that I hear? Nothing, he said. Don't be alarmed. It's just the soldiers. And Judas leads that band of soldiers over to the spot where he knew Jesus often went to pray. Strange that he knew the such holy places and yet knew not the Holy One. And he takes them down to that spot. And Jesus is back. Seeing the Lord Jesus as he appears in that moonlight splendor, he cries, Hail, Master! And kisses him. I believe every angel in heaven folded their wings and turned their faces away from such a terrible deed. Judas calls him master, and he is not his master. He calls him Lord, Lord, but he is not his Lord. He makes the profession public. He signs the card. He joins the church. He goes through the ritual. He calls him master, but he is not his master. And he plants the kiss that is a symbol of love and devotion on his cheek. And how angels must have cringed, for they knew his hypocrisy. He loved not our Lord Jesus. And Jesus knew that too. I believe that kiss on the cheek of our Lord must have wounded more than the stings of a thousand adders. It must have hurt more than the cat of nine tails that plowed deep furrows in his back and rich blood oozed from that wound. For here was a man whom Jesus had endeavored to win to himself for three years, preached to him, shared with him, lived in his company, and yet this one comes to not receive him, but to sell him for a meager, puny, 30 pieces of silver. What wounds there must have been. But watch it. I hear Jesus respond to him. You would think he'd respond in some different way, wouldn't you? He knew him to be the rascal he was. He knew him to be full of hypocrisy and pretension. But instead of scolding, Jesus sought with one last moment and move of word to awaken some memory that might bring conviction. Listen to Jesus. He said, friend, why have you come? Friend? But Jesus, don't you know he's not your friend? Why, he's betraying you, Jesus. He is a pretender, Lord. Don't be sucked into him. Oh, he's not. But with that word, friend, I believe Jesus reached in love's last reach and with love's last plea to rescue a darkened, damned soul. He called him friend. And I read in the scripture that greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Who'd he lay his life down for, Bobby? For me. A sinful, vile, wretched soul. A breaking his command. Flogging his will. Resisting his wonderful spirit. And yet he said, friend, I love you and I'm going to die for you. 
friend, why have you come, he said. And I think there must have awakened for a moment in the mind and conscience of Judas. I believe he must have thought, oh, I remember him. I remember when we sat by the seashore and he was so tired. And the little children came and I tried to rush them away and he scolded me and said, no, no, don't push the children away. Let them come to me. And he remembered faintingly and fleetingly that funeral possession in the city of Nain. A poor weeping widow woman with her only son now in the arms of death lies still and stiff on the funeral bier. And Jesus comes to that scene and walks right into the middle of the funeral and put his hand on that boy and said, Son, arise. And he who was dead arose. And a mother and her son were reunited. I cannot help but think in that moment when Jesus reminded Judas with that word friend, I cannot help but think he thought of that and felt again the surge and the warmth of his care and his concern for men. And I believe he thought, I know what I shall do. I'll fall down at his feet. And I'll say to him, Master, I'm your betrayer. You call me friend, but I'm not your friend. I'm your enemy. I've sold you, Lord Jesus, but oh, have mercy upon me. Forgive me, O oh Lord. I am a vile sinner. Have mercy. Save me. And I believe there must have been a surging urge to do that. But as is the case of so many today, a little voice is heard to say, But Judas, what do, you, what do you suppose the high priest will think about you if you do that? What do you suppose your friends will think? What about even these disciples? They learn you're the betrayer of Jesus. They think you've been a real follower of his all these years. Now you walk down the aisle and say, Hey, I've been a member of this church for years, but I've been saved. Well, what do they think about you? Some of you have heard that voice too, haven't you? I'm so familiar with it, I think I could almost mimic the voice. Time and again, I wanted to trust Jesus, but that voice said, hey, what do they think about you? Well, they think you're a Christian. They think you're all right. Pride damned the soul of Judas Iscariot. And the same pride will damn your eternal soul. The Bible said a man's pride shall bring him low. And the pride of Judas brought him to the lowest hell. The black-robed priest of pride carried that soul of Judas in his arms and sacrificed him on the altar of eternal hell. Pride. What men do because of pride to save face, to have a reputation, what they're going to say, what do they think? And Judas blighted his soul. The soldiers arrest Jesus and they take him away. And Judas is left alone as all men are when they sell Jesus. For a moment, he stands with a feeling of accomplishment. He succeeded. The plans worked. And now he takes out of that little leathern purse some of the silver coins. And he looks at them, and the moonlight reflects on them. A smile comes across his face. And he thinks I've succeeded. I've accomplished my deed. 
But no sooner than that sensation and thrill came, it passed as quickly. For those silver coins did not look like dancing moonbeams, but they looked like a thousand accusing fingers that pointed toward him, reminding him of his terrible deed. Somehow it feels a shroud drapes over his soul. Desperation fills his heart. And Judas now is saying, oh, I've done the wrong thing. I've done the wrong thing. And he runs after the soldiers who have already disappeared within the confines of the temple. And Judas runs back to the priest. And screaming as he comes in, he cries, I have sinned, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And he throws the coins on the marble floor. They ring like bells through the town. And the priest looked at him with coldness and helplessness and said, what's that to us? You see to that? You struck the bargain? You made the decision, Judas. Now you'll have to live with it. Hey, listen, no man's ever found release from the guilt of sin who confessed his sin to religion. Judas hadn't sinned against the church. His sin was against Christ. If he would know the forgiveness of Jesus, he must come to Jesus. But many a man goes to the psychologist and tries to relieve some guilt in his mind and soul. He goes to religion. He goes to the church. He goes to benevolent activity and finds a little release, but no answer to his problem. If Judas had come to Jesus, I believe, in that hour and said, Lord Jesus, I sold you. And I'm sorry. Oh, I'm a miserable, sinful man. Forgive me. I cannot help but believe, Pastor, our Lord would have said, I forgive you. It's all right. I forgive you. But pride drove him far away. I close with this. Finding no release in his guilt-ridden soul, he walks out to a precipice. He finds him a vine or a rope and ties it around his, around his neck ties the other end to a branch or a tree and leaps from that precipice. He can't stand life now. The guilt has paid him off. His sin sure enough paid and he leaps with one giant leap of desperation. The limb of the rope of the vine now breaks and Judas falls his body on the jagged rocks of a ravine. And the Bible said, in falling, his all his bowels gushed out. What a terrible, tragic end of a life that could have ended so differently. Could I relate this to you? My life would have perhaps ended the same, for I had plans to end it. But one great thing happened in my life that didn't happen to Judas. I was born in 1934, September 3rd, in this t little town of Highlands, North Carolina. My mother and father, loving parents. My dad was a Christian, backslidden. My mom was not a professed Christian at the time. 
But under the influence of neighbors who were Episcopalians, they had me christened when I was two days of age. Now, religious intention on the part of a parent for the child may be good, but it doesn't save them. You remember that. Salvation's a personal decision in your life. It's what you do with Christ, not what your mother and father does. So I was born in that kind of family. We moved from Highlands down into the northeast part of the state of Georgia where I've lived from there or from that time until now. Proud to be in Georgia. But when we moved down, my mother and dad, uh, well, they, they started going to church and uh, hearing the gospel. And one Sunday afternoon, Mama was listening to the radio and heard the voice of old Dr. Charles E. Fuller in the old-fashioned revival hour. And that dear man of God, when he had preached the gospel, would say, as some of you who are old enough to remember his voice, would say, if you're unsaved, lift your hand for prayer. And saying you want Christ your Savior. And I could hear him saying, even now, though I heard him as a child, I could hear him say, God bless you, sailor boy. God bless you, sir. God bless you there. And he said, now, if you know you're a sinner and you want to trust Christ as your Savior, he said, walk these aisles. Or if you're listening with the radio, just bow down on your knees and tell Jesus you're a sinner and ask him to save you. My old mama got out of her chair, fell down on her knees and prayed not to a preacher on a radio, but to the God who had spoken to her heart through his servant. And mama said, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I want you to save me. I trust you as my Savior. Amen. Mama got saved that afternoon, and Dad and Mother both began to go to church faithfully. Dad was soon elected a deacon of the little mountain church. Mama became a Sunday school teacher. My brother surrendered to the ministry after being saved. Still today is a faithful preacher in my county where I live. My sister was saved and surrendered life to the Lord. But somehow, for some reason, my heart rebelled against the personal acceptance of Christ. Oh, I knew the language. All I'd ever heard from the time I was a kid till then was things about Jesus. Preachers used to come and stay at our home. They'd preach from daylight till dark. Mom and Dad sat around talking about Jesus. I heard the verses quoted, went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, knew all the songs, knew the verses, and so forth. But still, somehow, I rejected Christ. When I was 12 years of age, the Methodists were held a holding a revival meeting in their church that was located right next door to the Baptist church. And in those revivals back in those days, the Methodist preacher, if they had a revival, they'd invite people to come down who wanted to join their church, or if you want to join the Baptist church, come and you can join the Baptist church in this Methodist meeting. So that particular night, I was standing looking around, all of a sudden, look back over here, and some of my buddies just filed out of the seat and down the aisle, and I thought, my soul, what are they doing? I don't be left here. So I headed out down mine. Here was a boy, a christened an Episcopalian, joined a Baptist church in a Methodist revival and is still lost and bound for hell. <laughs> Can you imagine that? And yet I came down, and I want, I want you to listen to this. When I came forward, here's what I remember was said. The dear pastor took me by the hand. And very tenderly and lovingly, he said, Son, you're doing the right thing tonight. I said, Oh, join the Baptist church. He questioned that, but he said, You're doing the right thing. <laughs> he asked me my name and said, I have a seat right over there. And I sat down. I wished 
hundreds of times since that that preacher has said, Son, do you do you know what it means to be lost? Do you know why you need to be saved? Let me show you how you can be saved, son. Let me show you from the scripture. Let's bow here and you invite Jesus in your heart. But instead of that, he just said encouragingly, you're doing the right thing. And I thought, boy, I sure am. So I joined the Baptist church and was baptized in the next baptizing at the church. Came in the church, began to work in the church. I knew the language, knew the songs. Occasionally as a teenage boy, 12, 13 years of age, I'd try to teach Sun Tzu class. Get up and sing in the church. And everybody thought, boy, that's sweet. Isn't that wonderful? God bless your little heart. You're a fine boy. Then when I was 14 years of age, I preached the first sermon I ever preached in my life. You say, how'd that happen? Well, my brother was pastoring a little Baptist church up in the mountains near Clayton, Georgia. Y'all ever heard of that? They had for their auditorium an old army hospital tent that stretched out on the side of the mountain. He had about 14 members. And I used to, and for some reason, I cannot explain this, and if you ask me, I have no explanation. But even before I was really saved, when I was just a child, somehow I felt like I'd be a preacher. Now, don't ask me to explain that. I don't know why. But I knew from the earliest days that is my life. I can't explain that any more than I can explain how Jeremiah was called for he was born. I can't even explain that anymore than I can explain how John the Baptist filled with the Holy Ghost in his mother's womb. I don't have an explanation for that. I just knew in my heart that's what God wanted me to do. And yet somehow, time and again, I'd wake mom up preaching in my sleep at night. Down in the basement, I had a little cardboard box. Little pulpit. Bible, the back's off of it. And the only member I had in my little church in my play church was my little screw-tailed bulldog named Jughead. And boy, you talk about preaching that little old fella, I'd lay it out to him. He'd sit there and look at me like this, look at me like that, and I'd tell him about running around at night. I'd tell him about living like a dog. This boy, I'd just give it to him. And somehow, listen, I don't know any other way to say it, and maybe some of you theologians can help me, but I just had preaching me. And so I preached, I said to my brother, I said, Bill, I sure would like to preach in your little church. Well, he said, look, he said, there's more to it than that. I said, what else? Well, he said, you need to be called to preach. He said, are you called? I said, well, I sure want to. Well, he said, listen, I don't want to stand in your way if God called you to preach. He said, I don't want to do that. And yet I don't want to encourage you in something that you don't have any business in. I said, he said, I tell you what, let's pray for a couple of weeks, and then if you still feel like you ought to preach, I'll let you preach. He thought up there in the mountains couldn't hurt 12 or 14 people. <laughs> so that Sunday came around, he said, how do you feel? I said, boy, I sure am ready. He said, okay. So I got up, and I preached the first sermon I ever preached in my life, 14 years of age. You know what I preached? What I'd heard my mom and daddy talk about, what I'd heard my brother talk about, what I'd heard my pastors talk about, I preached on, ye must be born again. Boy, I laid her out. But you know what I was doing, John? I said, you got to. You got to. You got to. I had one finger out that direction, but I failed to see the three that is pointing back at me. 
do you realize Jesus Christ said, I don't care who you are, you will never see the kingdom of God unless you are born again? You can quote the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, go to Sunday school all your life, have a Sunday school pen that drags the floor when you walk but and still die and go to hell. The whole story is, it is not these outward external things, but it's what a man does with Jesus Christ's heart, whether or not he receives him as his personal Savior or no. And I fear that we have literally thousands in our religious world who have never known what it means to be born again. And so I preached that first sermon. Soon folk got to hearing about the little mountain preacher. They'd come around and say, God bless you, boy, we're so proud of you. You know what that did to me? Boy, my chest started swelling. My head got big. I thought, boy, Heidi, I'm going someplace now. I didn't realize I was going to hell. They said, look, you're doing fine. They didn't mean any harm by their encouragement. They were kind. They were thoughtful. But you see, to a fellow that doesn't know what it means to be saved by the grace of God, all that adulation just blows his pride up a little more. Doesn't bring any sense of humility. And so, they begin, I get, begin an invitation here, there, everywhere, just all over the country. Little, little 14-year-old preacher, they said. Isn't that a 15-year-old preacher? Isn't that something? And so, yet in my heart, miserable. When I was 18 years of age, I was called to a Baptist church out of Tacoa, Georgia, by the name of Zebulon Baptist Church, the oldest church in the old Tugelo Baptist Association. And I went there as an 18-year-old boy, and when I got there, I was a student over at Bob Jones University and used to hear old Dr. Bob Jones Sr. preach. Fine man of God. And I'd come back home Sunday and I'd preach what he he- I heard him say. And I could do it just like him, you know. So I'd tell him what he said. I'd tell him what I'd read in the book. But time and again, as a young 18-year-old pastor in the oldest church in that country at the time, I would study sometimes such text as Matthew 7. And I remember coming on an occasion to that verse that said, Not every one that saith, Lord, Lord. Many will say to me in that day, We not prophesied in thy name, cast out devils, and I'd get under conviction. And I'd close my Bible and say, I need something else. I can't preach that. I'm going to tell you something's going to shock your shoes too. I saw people walk down the aisle. And say, we want to be saved. You know what I'd do? I'd say, Deacon, take this fellow over here and pray with him. Man, it scared the life out of me. They'd come down the aisle and my heart would break. And I'd say, listen, that's what I need to do. Y'all don't know what I'm hurting, how I'm hurting down in here. I want to do that too. I remember getting down the basement of that old church. Praying, oh God, listen, if I should be lost. Now, Lord... I want you to save me. If, Lord, if I'm a sinner, if I'm, law, if I'm a sinner, Lord, save me. But I never did get anywhere with God with that if business, and you won't either. The Lord didn't say, if you're a sinner, he said, you are one. It's only your pride that'll keep you from acknowledging that, Lord, it's getting late. Let me finish now. Hang on just a second. Let me finish this. Will you? Can I do it? All right, let me finish this. So, when I, I, I got in that church, people come and get saved. I'd get out and pray, Lord, if I'm lost. I remember getting over Frank Dyer's cow pasture one time, looking around, you know, and seeing if anybody was around. And 
Man, I got down behind a log and I said, oh God, if I'm really a sinner, now Lord, save me. Now Lord, you know if I'm lost, if, I'm, if I don't know you, if I'm not saved, Lord, save me. And I even got pretty loud and I can do that. I imagine some folks heard that. God couldn't hear me. I wasn't agreeing with him. He said, boy, you're a sinner. All of sin. But Lord, not me. Look at me. I'm preaching in a little church down here. And Lord, look at all these folks I've tried to help all my life. Listen, I'm going to tell you, all that stuff is nothing when it comes to your being saved. That don't save you. I don't care how much you've done, how much sweat you've sweated, how much money you've given, how many Bible verses you've read, how many religious books you've read. The only thing that will save you is Jesus Christ. Not your preaching, teaching, singing, working, anything else. Only the Son of God and your reception of Him. I'll close by telling you, and I wish I had all night tell you, I just, when I get started on this, it's like a fellow telling about getting married. He don't know when to quit. Amen. But finally, after much dealings in my heart, I met a fellow one time by the name of Percy Ray. Now, I don't agree with everything Percy says, but I love him. He was God's instrument. He don't agree with everything I say. And that's to his advantage. But nonetheless, he's my friend. He heard me one night leading singing in an old revival meeting in another church. And he said, I want that fellow lead singing for me down to a meeting in Barnwell, South Carolina. So he called and said uh, on the phone, he said, Brother Burl, he said, this is Percy Ray. He said, I want you to come down and lead singing for me in a big crusade down in Barnwell, South Carolina. I said, Percy Ray? He said, that's right. I said, listen, I'm too busy. I can't make it. Now listen, I wasn't busy, but I knew how I felt when I heard that bird preach. Man, I felt like I was hanging out over hell. I felt like he was looking straight gun barrel down at me and saying, boy, you need to get born again. I remember one night in that revival meeting, I heard him. Listen, he said, listen, if, if you've ever heard him, you'll appreciate this. He said, there's somebody right over here lost. And I happened to be standing outside in the vestibule on that side. You know what I did? I moved around on the other side. And you know what he did? He said, there's somebody over on this side lost. Now, he didn't see me doing the cartwheel out there in the vestibule. But listen, I'm going to tell you, somebody did. God's blessed spirit. But he had tracking me down, tracking me down. So finally, he said, listen. I'll call you back in 24 hours. You pray about it. And he said, maybe you can work his schedule out and you can come down here. Well, I said, ain't no need to pray and I can't come. He said, pray. Well, he prayed and I waited. Finally, he called back and said, are you coming? And I said, he said, I got ahead. He said, uh, just not able to get anybody else. He said, I need you to down, down here. Several churches getting in this thing. And he said, won't you come? And I said, well, okay. And I hung the phone up mad. I packed my suitcase mad. I got in the car mad, and I drove down that meeting mad, and I started leading the singing mad. Man, I was, I was determined he, that, that stuff wasn't going to get to me. All through the meeting, the power of God moved, and folks with a score literally came down in that old tobacco warehouse and gave their heart and life to Jesus Christ. And night after night, I'd stand leading just as I am without one plea. 
and see people streaming down the aisles broken and under conviction and saying, oh God, I wish I could throw this book down and fall down on my knees. That's what I need, God. And Lord say, go ahead, son. And I'd stand back. And finally, the last night of the meeting came and I thought, boy, I've made it. This is the last night. I'd already struggled so in my heart that I determined to give up the little church, tell them I was through with it all, throw my Bible down. In fact, I didn't even believe in God, I said. He doesn't even exist. All these other folks claim to be Christian. They're a bunch of hypocrites just like I am, a bunch of pretenders. No reality in their professions of faith either. You know, isn't it strange how a fellow tried to get everybody in his boat when he's sinking? You know, I tried to, get, I tried to see everybody. Just, and that's the way we usually see people. We see them because of what we are. So, the last night of the meeting, final sermon, final invitation, everybody had left but one deacon in a church. He walked over as Dr. Ray and I started to get in the car and crying and weeping, he said, Preacher, would you and the song leader come over to my little trailer? My boy's lost, and I've had such a burden for him in this meeting. Would you all come over, you and the singer? And try to tell him about Jesus one more time. And before I could speak up and say, I ain't a-going, he can, the preacher said, yeah, we'll both be there. Both of us. So I got in the car and we drove over Barnwell, South Carolina, Jackson Drive, number 45, a little construction worker's house trailer, building the Savannah River Project. We sat there and table folded out of the wall. I got on the backside and Percy sat out here and Young fellas introduced to us, sat down here on a little couch. Dr. Ray looked at him for a while and he said, son, I want to ask you something. He said, are you a Christian? And the boy braced himself and said, well, sir, he said, I'm a member of the first Christian church here in Barnwell. Dr. Ray was very kind. He said, I'm sorry, I, you misunderstood me. He said, what I want to really know is this, son, have you ever seen yourself a lost sinner? And ever because you knew you was lost and on your road to hell, just ask Jesus Christ to come in your heart and be your Savior. And the old boy's heart melted. He looked at him and said, no, sir, I've never done that. He said, son, you ever heard that Jesus said you had to be born again? He said, yeah, I heard somebody say that. Well, he said, do you know what that means? And he said, no, sir. First, he said, let me tell you what it means. Boy, he began to go down the line. There I sat. Boy, God began to zero in on me. He didn't know he was preaching to me too. Hey, you know what a consolation that is to me, Pastor? Sometimes I think I'm preaching to one fellow and God's preaching to somebody else. And here I was sitting over there just fighting and resisting conviction beginning, and I'd resist and resist. And the Lord says, Son, when, oh, won't you let me in? You need me. You need to be born again, son. You'll never get to heaven. And I'd say, well, Lord, look, I'm passing a church. Don't you know? Look at all that good stuff I've done. I've told people how to be saved. And Lord, surely I... The Lord says, son, listen, all of sin didn't come to the glory. You never face yourself as a sinner. Just ask me into your heart. And I'd keep resisting and say, but Lord, if I did that, what did my people say? What did mom and daddy say? They think I'm a Christian. What do people think about me? And finally, as I labored and resisted, the Lord seemed to say, though I heard no audible voice, he seemed to say, Walter, I've called you many times and you have resisted. But I called you now 
for the last time. It's now or never. And bud, when that happened, I said, oh God, I'm through with this. I know I'm lost. And I want you to save me right now. Boy, I'm going to tell you something. Hey, I can't explain that. I don't know what in the world happened. All the thing I know was I asked Jesus to come in my heart.